Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. From New York, this is Democracy Now! Standing today in Tel Hashomer base and I am refusing to enlist, I believe that slaughter cannot solve slaughter. The criminal attack on Gaza won't solve the atrocious slaughter that Hamas executed. Violence won't solve violence, and that is why I refuse. As Israel warns its war on Gaza will continue for many months, we'll look at war resistance inside Israel. Earlier this week, an 18-year-old Israeli was sentenced to 30 days in prison for refusing to enlist. We'll speak to a Palestinian member of the Knesset who was suspended for criticizing Israel's assault on Gaza. Then we'll speak to the founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund. I just learned of two children who were killed this week with their families in the Gaza Strip who were brought to the United States in 2019 for free medical care. That makes six children that we've brought for treatment in the United States who've been killed in Gaza since October 7th. We're calling for an immediate ceasefire and an end to the killing of unarmed civilians in the Gaza Strip. Then to Mexico. Secretary of State Tony Blinken, Homeland Security Chief Alejandro Mayorkas met with Mexican President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador on Wednesday to discuss migration and the border. The visit of Blinken and Mayorkas to Mexico is another sign that the Biden administration is caving to Republican demands to further criminalize and expel migrants and asylum seekers. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Israel's military has launched its most intense raids in the occupied West Bank since Israel began its assault on the Gaza Strip following Hamas's attack on October 7th. Overnight, Israeli forces raided 10 cities, including Ramallah, where at least one Palestinian was shot dead and 15 others wounded during confrontations with Israeli soldiers. The Palestine Monetary Authority says Israeli troops targeted at least six money exchange companies, seizing over $2 million worth of funds. Meanwhile, disturbing details are emerging about an Israeli drone strike on the North Shamps refugee camp that killed six Palestinians. The head of the Tokara Medical Syndicate reports Israeli soldiers stopped and boarded ambulances carrying people injured in the bombing. One patient was reportedly stabbed in the neck, while two others were removed from ambulances and severely beaten. The World Health Organization warns tens of thousands of Palestinians are fleeing Israeli attacks on central and southern Gaza as devastating airstrikes continue to kill civilians. Palestinian health officials say the latest assaults have killed at least 50 people in areas including Beit Lachia, Khan Yunis and Maghazi. Among those killed are two more media workers, TV journalist Mohammed Khair al-Din and his camera operator Ahmed Khair al-Din, were killed when Israel's military attacked a residential square in Beit Lahia. Gaza's government media office says they are the 104th and 105th journalists killed in the Gaza Strip since October. 
Meanwhile, Gaza's public health crisis continues to deepen, with starving residents increasingly stopping aid shipments in search of food and drinkable water. Hundreds of thousands of Gazans have been effectively cut off from medical care. Sean Casey, emergency medical team coordinator for the World Health Organization, says hospital capacity is at about 20 percent of what it was in early October. So almost all of the hospital beds, almost all of the hospital services have stopped functioning either because the facilities themselves have been affected, because the staff have been forced to flee, because they run out of power uh, or, or um, they run out of uh, medical supplies and, and or, or the staff have not been able to access them. The United Nations warns some 300,000 people in Sudan have been forced to flee the state of Jazeera as paramilitaries with the feared rapid support forces have pressed further south from the capital Khartoum, expanding their war against Sudan's army while pillaging supplies of food and valuables. On Wednesday, the leader of the RSF, General Mohamed Hamdan Degalo, said he had met with Uganda's president, Yoweri Museveni, in his first appearance outside Sudan since he launched a campaign of violence aimed at the ouster of Sudan's ruling military junta. The RSF has since been accused of carrying out a genocide in West Darfur. Seven million people are displaced. Almost two-thirds of Sudan's population, or about 30 million people, are in need of humanitarian assistance. An Associated Press investigation has found Russian occupation authorities vastly and deliberately undercounted the number of people killed by severe flooding that followed the catastrophic explosion last June at the Nova Kakhovka Dam on the Dnipro River, the southern Kherson region. Ukraine blames Russian forces for blowing up the dam to counter Ukraine's planned counteroffensive. Russia claims 59 people died in the disaster, but an AP report puts the true number far higher, with hundreds dead in the Russian-occupied town of Oleshki alone. On Wednesday, the Biden administration announced a military aid package to Ukraine worth $250 million, including air defense systems, rockets for mobile launchers, anti-armor munitions, and millions of rounds of ammunition. It's the last aid package to Ukraine the U.S. will provide unless Congress approves the Biden administration's request for billions of dollars in additional funding to Ukraine. The world's 15 largest weapons manufacturers have seen revenues soar in the 2020s as governments place new orders for heavy weaponry and record supplies of ammunition. That's according to the Financial Times, which found in a new analysis such expenditures soared last year by more than 10 percent compared to two years prior as the U.S. and NATO allies poured billions of dollars worth of arms into Ukraine. A global benchmark for the weapons industry's share prices is up 25 percent over the last year, while a European arms and aerospace stock index is up by over 50 percent over the same period. Here in New York, at least 26 people were arrested Wednesday as they blocked an expressway leading to JFK Airport in a nonviolent civil disobedience protest demanding a ceasefire in the Gaza Strip. Protesters linked arms and held banners reading, right to return, right to remain and divest from genocide, snarling traffic to New York's busiest airport for about 20 minutes during the busiest travel week of the year. In Los Angeles, 36 people arrested at a simultaneous protest that blocked traffic near Los Angeles International Airport. 
Argentina's far-right president, Javier Millet, said Tuesday his government would not renew contracts for more than 5,000 employees higher this year before his inauguration earlier this month. The mass firings follow a presidential decree by Millet last week that seeks to massively deregulate Argentine businesses, privatize state-run industries, slash workers' wages, while massively cracking down on civil liberties, including the right to hold protests. On Wednesday, thousands defied the ban on protests to take to the streets of Buenos Aires. This is Eduardo Belliboni, leader of the progressive workers' rights organization Polo Obrero. There is a violation of workers' fundamental rights in Argentina. They are attacking our wages. People are being denied the right to protest brutal adjustments that will affect the poor. Workers are suffering wage cuts by a government that benefits the interests of the big business owners. Michigan's Supreme Court has ruled Donald Trump can remain on the Michigan primary ballot. The court declined to hear a lawsuit arguing the former president was constitutionally ineligible for public office after inciting the January 6th insurrection. Last week, Colorado's Supreme Court disqualified Trump, citing the insurrection clause of the 14th Amendment, which was written to prevent Civil War Confederates from returning to government. The Republican Party in Colorado has appealed the ruling to the U.S. Supreme Court, ensuring that Donald Trump's name will remain on the Colorado primary ballot, since it has to be printed up in the next few weeks. A number of other states, including Maine, are hearing similar cases. On Wednesday, Trump filed a request for the Democratic Secretary of State of Maine to recuse herself from the case. Meanwhile, in Colorado, the FBI and local police are investigating a slew of threats targeting judges who voted last week to disqualify Trump from the 2024 ballot. In other Trump news, special counsel Jack Smith has asked a federal court to bar the former president from sowing disinformation in his federal 2020 election interference case trial. In a filing, prosecutors wrote, quote, the court should not permit the defendant to turn the courtroom into a forum in which he propagates irrelevant disinformation and should reject his attempt to inject politics into this proceeding. On the campaign trail, Republican presidential hopeful Nikki Haley Wednesday did not cite slavery when asked what she believed caused the U.S. Civil War. Haley was fielding a question from a participant of a town hall meeting in Berlin, New Hampshire. We need to have capitalism. We need to have economic freedom. We need to make sure that we do all things so that individuals have the liberties so that they can have freedom of speech, freedom of religion, freedom to do or be anything they want to be without government getting in the way. Thank you. And in, in the year 2023, it's astonishing to me that you answer that question without mentioning the word slavery. What do you want me to say about slavery? No, uh, uh, you've answered my question. Thank you. Next question. Nikki Haley was the former governor of South Carolina. And the comedian and folk musician Tom Smothers has died at the age of 86. With his brother, he hosted the Smothers Brothers, a pioneering TV show in the 1960s, which made headlines for its fights over censorship with CBS for tackling topics like the civil rights movement and the Vietnam War. In 1967, the Smothers Brothers convinced CBS to allow folk singer Pete Seeger to appear on the show, even though he'd been blacklisted from TV since the 1950s. 50s. While CBS finally said yes, the network refused to air the segment after Pete Seeger sang out against the Vietnam War. 
In 2003, Pete Seeger appeared on Democracy Now! and talked about what happened. Finally, in October, they said, OK, you can have them on. And I sang this song, Waist deep in the big muddy, the big fool says to push on. The tape was made in California, flown to New York, and in New York, they scissored the song out. And uh, now the Smothers Brothers took to the print media and said, CBS is censoring our best jokes. They censored Seeger's best song. And they got some publicity. You can see the whole interview at democracynow.org. CBS finally allowed Pete Seeger's performance to air months later, thanks in part due to pressure from Tom Smothers. Tom Smothers died at the age of 86 on Tuesday in Santa Rosa, California. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. We'll be back after we hear Pete Seeger performing on the Smothers Brothers. It was back in 1942, I was a member of a good platoon. We were on maneuvers in Louisiana one night by the light of the moon. The captain told us to ford a river, that's how it all begun. We were knee-deep in the big muddy, the big fools had to push on. Well, the sergeant said, sir, are you sure this is the best way back to the base? Sergeant, go on, I've forded this river about a mile above this place. It'll be a little soggy, but just keep slogging, we'll soon be on dry ground. We were waist deep in the big muddy, the big pool said to push on. Sergeant said, sir, with all this equipment, no man will be able to swim. Pete Seeger performing Waist Deep in the Big Muddy on the Smothers Brothers. The show's co-host Tom Smothers has died at the age of 86. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. And I'm Nermeen Sheikh. Welcome to our listeners and viewers across the country and around the world. As Israel is threatening to continue its assault on Gaza for many months, we begin today's show looking at resistance to the war inside Israel. On Tuesday, an 18-year-old Israeli teenager named Tal Mitnick was sentenced to 30 days in prison after he refused to enlist in the Israeli army. He spoke out against Israel's assault on Gaza before his sentencing on Tuesday. I'm standing today in Tel HaShomer base and I am refusing to enlist. I believe that slaughter cannot solve slaughter. The criminal attack on Gaza won't solve the atrocious slaughter that Hamas executed. Violence won't solve violence. And that is why I refuse. Last week, Tal Mitnick spoke to Navara Media about why he decided to become a conscientious objector. What led me was uh, the realization that it's not just a couple soldiers uh, that are bad soldiers or that enact uh, violent occupation on Palestinians, but it's actually a whole system, system of violence, um, of pulling people into the army and making them work for the occupation and for oppressing Palestinians. A lot of my friends um, are serving and right now are in military service. Um, and when I tell them my opinions, because I am their friend, they see the humanity in my positions and they see that my, my only, I only want for there to be good in this place. I want security and I want peace for everyone. 
And when people get to know me, when people hear this opinion, um, they, um, the, this opinion is very humanistic and very normal. So this is what we're trying to do. We're trying to make more, uh, teens, make more young people hear this position that there is an alternative to the massacre that is happening right now in Gaza and to the massacre that Hamas committed on October 7th. There is an alternative in peace of peace, um, and nonviolence. That was Tal Mitnick speaking to Ash Sarkar, the British journalist. He has now been sentenced to 30 days in prison for refusing to enlist. Israel's facing growing criticism for stifling anti-war voices. We're joined now by Edituma Sliman. She's a Palestinian member of the Knesset from the Progressive Democratic Front for Peace and Equality, known as the Hadash Party. She was suspended from the Knesset last month for criticizing the Israeli military assault on Gaza. She is joining us now from Acho in northern Israel, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Welcome to Democracy Now!, Aida Tuman uh, Sleiman. If you can start off by talking about the significance of Tal's resistance, but then go on to talk about the situation in Gaza today and why you were suspended. I mean, you're an elected leader of the Knesset. Who gets to suspend you? Well, hi. Um, thank you for hosting me. Um, actually, uh, those who uh, suspended me uh, are the same uh, people who are uh, uh, putting Tal now in prison because he is refused to enlist himself. Uh, to the army. Uh, those are uh, those who are ruling Israel, uh, this government, very extreme right-wing government, who is uh, um, refusing to hear any uh, voice, uh, anti-war uh, uh, voice, anybody uh, who is opposing this uh, bl uh, blood, bloody um, uh, war. Uh, there are uh, massive uh, uh, pressure uh, used by the government in order to silence the voices who uh, refuse to believe that uh, uh, military actions and wars and killing uh, innocent people might uh, get us anywhere or can uh, be uh, um, uh, a way to solve uh, the problem. I think uh, it's uh, it has been already a month uh, since I was suspended by the uh, so-called ethics committee, parliamentarian ethics committee, who um, uh, punished me for uh, uh, quoting testimonies from uh, physicians from a Shifa hospital, who, which were published in the international media. Uh, and for that, I've been uh, punished, uh, not uh, allowed to speak out in the Knesset or to participate in the com uh, uh, committees for two months. One have passed already. Uh, uh, of course, uh, this is not democratic, but uh, when uh, you see that the same government, the same Knesset is supporting a war that is killing more than 21,000 uh, uh, people, 70% of them children and uh, um, women in Gaza, you understand that uh, uh, it's ridiculous uh, to speak about democracy in such situation. Because launching such a war was as if a reaction to Hamas attack on the 7th of October 
uh, which also uh, uh, we don't. I don't see it uh, as uh, in any way legitimized to kidnap uh, uh, civilians, including children. But it's of course do not legitimize also this uh, crazy war that uh, has been going on in the last more than uh, uh, two months. It's already um, 80, uh, more than 80 days. Uh, so you can understand that uh, when Tal refused to enlist himself, he is a unique voice in the Israeli society. For a young man to stand up against all the mainstream, and not only mainstream, but kind of consensus. Today, the situation in Israel is almost 90% of the society is in consensus of supporting the war. To stand up and to say that uh, uh, he will uh, not take uh, uh, part in this war, he is not willing to be part of this um, uh, military uh, forces that are uh, uh, attacking, bombing in Gaza, it's a very brave uh, 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 position to take. It is not easy. I'm, I'm sure he will not be uh, embraced or uh, tolerated inside the uh, military uh, uh, prison. But we have to also remember that he is the first one to do it during this war. We hopefully think that uh, there are uh, might be uh, some young uh, uh, women and men who are finding other ways uh, to uh, avoid enlisting themselves, but uh, at least they are not going publicly about it or uh, turning it to a political issue. Uh, but uh, he's still a unique voice and not the majority voice for my regret. So, MK, uh, Aida, if you could also uh, talk about, you've mentioned the fact that, uh, you know, 90 percent of Israeli society is uh, supporting the war, but there is a, a minority that is opposed to it. And you've mentioned that this number, uh, the number that is critical of the war, has increased in recent weeks. If you could explain where that resistance is most prominent and what you think has led to an increase in this opposition. Well, uh, from day one, we understood that uh, uh, the uh, forces, that uh, democratic forces, the anti-war, anti-occupation forces that existed before the 7th of October um, will, uh, uh, with, with no regard to the shock that happened on the 7th of October, will still continue to believe. Uh, in peace, will still continue to believe that occupation should be ended and the war should be ended. In the beginning, there were, uh, as I mentioned to you, also uh, a lot of anger and fears of people that avoided having uh, clear activities uh, against this war. Most of the activities were uh, um, uh, uh, to uh, put uh, pressure to release they kidnapped Israelis in uh, Hamas, uh, at Hamas in Gaza. But more and more people started to understand 
that first of all, even this war, if they thought that the war, the Israeli government have persuaded them in the beginning that this war is needed also to release the kidnapped Israeli. Today they understand, especially with the testimonies of the uh, released uh, um, uh, uh, hostages, uh, telling how dangerous it was to stay under the shelling and the uh, bombardment of Israel. So they understand that this war, first of all, is um, uh, uh, rescuing the uh, security of the hostages who are still, 109 people are still in, uh, in Gaza. Uh, and second, they started to understand that what really released part of the hostages was the uh, negotiation and the, the contacts and the diplomatic path and not the military path. So more and more people are understanding that this war is not bringing them anywhere. Of course, 20% of the population in Israel, which is the uh, Palestinian Arab minority in Israel, are against this war, but we need more from the Jewish side also to be uh, against the war. Lately, we managed to put together um, a big uh, demonstration in Tel Aviv, which was the first demonstration um, uh, against the war that was uh, challenging the silencing policy that was led against especially the Palestinian citizens of Israel. You know, we were under a crackdown on, uh, on uh, not only on the uh, 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 citizens, the Arab citizens, but also the leadership. Uh, if me silenced in the Knesset, there were also former MKs um, and the, the head of the high follow-up committee who were arrested just because they were on their way to have a small protest against the war. Many students were uh, dismissed from school, from uh, university, and people were dismissed from their jobs only because they published something that uh, 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 expressed uh, sympathy to what's happening uh, to the uh, people in Gaza, to our people in Gaza. But today, for example, we challenged this silencing policy again, and we had a protest in Nazareth. Despite the warnings of the uh, 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 police and uh, the fact that they wanted to avoid this protest, we insisted and we had this protest. Tomorrow we will have a big meeting of uh, different uh, groups and organizations, anti-occupation, anti-war, and we are uh, going to establish a big coalition against this war. We are not intending to bend for this uh, silencing policy and terrorizing people who are against the war. We understand very clearly that crimes are committed and civilians are killed and that the amounts of destruction is huge. And if, if the international community choose to be silenced, that's their problem. We are not going to be silenced and we want to stand up against this war. 
So, MK Aida, there is, uh, there are uh, places where you still see in Israel criticism of the war, including Haaretz and uh, Plus 972 magazine uh, journalists who have also appeared uh, from there on our show. Uh, in addition, of course, to the concern about the hostages in Israel, now over 150 Israeli soldiers have been killed in Gaza. If you could talk about the impact of that as people in Israel see uh, the costs to uh, uh, Israeli lives as this war goes on, is there a sense within Israel of what it is that uh, uh, is being fought for? Yeah, uh, well, as I mentioned before, gradually more and more people are understanding that uh, the war is not going to bring any security or any peace for both sides, including and mainly the, the Israeli side. More and more people understand that they cannot continue forever with this war because there are implications of that war, not only in, in the meaning of losing uh, uh, lives. There are also injured soldiers. More than uh, 5,000 soldiers have been injured. Some of them will stay uh, 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 handicapped for all of their lives. Uh, families are seeing how their uh, uh, sons, the soldiers, are coming back from war traumatized and need uh, um, uh, uh, psychological treatment. There are implications on the economy. Uh, we are going to face, there's a raise uh, just yesterday. Uh, uh, there is. There was uh, the um, uh, report, uh, the poverty report uh, that shows there is a raise in the percentages of people who are dropping down of the uh, uh, poverty uh, line, and we are expecting a very difficult uh, economic year to come uh, because of this war. And people are starting to ask the hard questions. Uh, why uh, we need to continue this war if uh, if we are going to pay such a high price and still not reach any security. You have to understand also that uh, uh, people in the north of Israel, near my house, and in the south of Israel are not living in their homes uh, uh, because of the, uh, of this war. Uh, still, we are not saying that this is most difficult situation. Of course, the war is is horrific in what's happening in Gaza. But uh, to make the Israeli society uh, stand up against the war only because of the suffering of the Palestinians, as much as it is moral, uh, I'm afraid it's not enough to make the people in Israel, especially after the 7th of October. Uh, uh, it's not going to make them stand up against the uh, war. But what is happening in the Israeli society, the fact that more than 150 soldiers uh, have been killed, the fact that they, uh, uh, the families are receiving their, ch their sons, their soldiers uh, injured and handicapped, is might be uh, more, um, sorry, uh, uh, sufficient in uh, convincing the people to go out against the war. 
I wanted to ask specifically about the power of the voices of the hostages or their loved ones who are speaking out for them. This is Sharon Calderon uh, speaking last week, sister-in-law uh, of Ofer Calderon, who's being held hostage in Gaza. We just want them to sit, all the cabinet will we'll, we'll sit and we'll find a way to negotiate and to bring our people home. We want them home. But no one is doing nothing right now except fighting. And fighting is not the answer right now. We want our people here, back home, with us. And if we fight, we cannot bring them alive. And we don't want to get bags. We want to get them alive. So this is why we're here every day until we heard from the government that they are sitting, talking. Now, this is a powerful voice, the families of the hostages. Um, you have on Monday them screaming, shouting in the Knesset as uh, Netanyahu is addressing the Israeli parliament, achshav, achshav, now, now, uh, demanding that the hostages uh, be released. Already, it's clear that a number of them, not just the three men who were killed by Israeli soldiers, the young hostages, um, but a number of others uh, were killed killed in the Israeli bombing uh, in Gaza. The significance of this voice, and if it's being amplified by others, um, did you expect the hostages to play this kind of role, the hostage families? Well, of course. I mean, uh, uh, no one can imagine the suffering of uh, uh, people uh, who uh, don't know what is happening with their family members. Uh, if I was uh, in their place, I will also be not quiet and I will uh, do whatever I can in order to change uh, uh, and to bring them back. So, yes, I think it is expected, although they are showing very high, uh, really, um, uh, effect. they are very effective in how they organize themselves and how they are very vocal and uh, speaking out and demanding to bring their uh, families. This is also happening, I think, as a contrast to the fact that this government, the Israeli government, is not giving this issue much attention if you compare it to the uh, other targets or goals that Netanyahu put for this war. And that's why they felt neglected. That's why they felt that they don't have the enough backup from the government and they needed to organize themselves and to be so uh, vocal about uh, the issue. We only have less than a minute, but you are a Palestinian journalist as well as an MK, a member of the parliament. Um, I wanted to get your response to it's believed over a hundred journalists and media workers have been killed in Gaza. Le the headlines today, TV journalists Mohammed Khair al-Din and Ahmed Khair al-Din, the journalist and cameraman, uh, also died in a bombing in Gaza. Your response to the demand, for example, by Al Jazeera for the International Criminal Court to take on the issue of the targeting of journalists. Uh, well, it's uh, there are 105 uh, uh, journalists who has been killed since uh, the beginning of this war. If you remember, it started also by other journalists before who were killed, including 
شيرين ابو عاقلي هو was targeted and killed uh, uh, from Al Jazeera. We have the feeling that the journalists are targeted in order to silence the voices who are coming out from Gaza and uh, exposing the reality uh, uh, of what is happening. Uh, of course, I think that there Israel. should be an investigation. Of course, there should be an investigation and it should be a clear out that there is no possibility to continue uh, uh, to be uh, quiet about this targeting. Aida Tuma Suleiman, we want to thank you so much for being with us, a member of the Israeli Knesset, uh, MK, that's a member of the Knesset, Palestinian member, suspended last month for criticizing the Israeli military assault on Gaza, joining us from Akko in northern Israel. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. We continue to look at Israel's war on Gaza and turn now to the war's impact on children. According to Palestinian officials, the Israeli assault has killed more than 8,200 children in Gaza over the past 11 weeks. At least 8,600 children have been injured. UNICEF says some 1,000 Palestinian children have had limbs amputated without anesthesia due to the lack of basic medical resources. We're joined now by Steve Sosby, founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, an organization that provides medical and humanitarian aid to Palestinian children in Gaza and the West Bank. The fund, founded in 1991, has helped build pediatric cancer center units, emergency departments and ICUs in Gaza. Six Palestinians... Um, that the group brought to the United States for free medical care in recent years have been killed in Gaza since October 7th. Two of them killed this week within a day of each other. Izzedin Nawasra was killed on Christmas with his entire family. And Mohammed al-Ajuri was killed the day after Christmas with his wife and baby. Steve Sosby, our deepest condolences. If you can talk about these two, well, people who were children when you met them, when they were brought to the United States, you brought them to uh, get them medical care and now killed in the Israeli attacks in Gaza. Tell us about them. Yeah, well, both of them were amputees. Both had been shot by snipers during the Great Return Marches of 2018. They were teenagers who were participating in peaceful protests at the gates, They're ref- at the um, borders of Gaza. Um, they're refugees. They were born into refugee camps in the Gaza Strip. Their families were um, descendants of refugees in, from 1948 when the state of Israel was created and were, um, as all refugees in Palestine, demanding the right to return to their villages, to their homes, to their towns uh, within Israel. Uh, during these protests, both had suffered um, baloney amputations from the result of being shot by a sniper. And our organization, as a humanitarian organization, identifies these kids who need medical care they can't get locally. And the quality of prosthetic care in Gaza uh, before October 7th was really um, underdeveloped and in need of improvement, which we were working on. Um, so these kids were brought outside for treatment. Izzedine was brought to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, where he was provided a new leg and taught to walk again. And Mohammed was brought to Dayton, Ohio, where the same thing. Both of them were provided below knee prosthetics for free. Um, treated by um, excellent facilities and also by our communities who took care of them as host families. And they became very much integrated in the communities, uh, uh, part of the communities where people want to be involved more in helping these children. Uh, Both of them had great experiences during their treatment. Um, They flourished 
being outside of Gaza for the first time in their lives. And uh, when we sent them back um, home, as we do with all of our injured kids, um, both of them uh, started to uh, have a new hope in life. They, for the first time since their injuries, they were able to go to back to school. They were becoming independent. They were mobile. In the case of Izzedine, we even hired him to become a field worker for our organization. And uh, one of the areas that he was quite interested in was photography. And so we gave him the opportunity to learn and to train in photography to become part of our communications team. And he was flourishing. He was, uh, you know, having an opportunity to, it was a dream for him to help his own people. Uh, I've been in touch with both of them during the war, um, the bombings in Gaza, and Izzedine in particular I was quite close with uh, because I had taken him back home uh, after his treatment. And um, he had mentioned that, you know, he was still alive because that's the communication you have with people in Gaza these days. It's just a very basic, are you still alive it's not much else you can really say, I hope you're okay. It's kind of a painful way of, of expressing your sympathy and um, support for the people there. And, um, you know, he was always responding, yes, I'm fine. How are you? And then recently was asking, you know, how can I do more to help my people? I'm looking for ways to, to be part of, you know, humanitarian work here on the ground during this terrible crisis. So even during this period, um, a boy who had lost his leg and who was, um, you know, disabled for the rest of his life in a certain sense, was looking for ways to help his own people during this terrible crisis. And both of them are, as you mentioned, two of six kids that we brought to the United States who've been killed uh, over the past two and a half months. So, Steve Sosby, you mentioned, of course, that even before October 7th, uh, the care for uh, amputees uh, in Gaza was was very, very poor. If you could talk about what you're hearing from your colleagues in Gaza now, uh, where there are so many children uh, who are in need of prosthetic limbs, uh, what yeah. is the situation there now, especially since also, as, as we reported, uh, you know, there isn't even anesthesia uh, available yeah. for uh, operations uh, for children who are so, so much in need? Yeah, it's hard to even convey the idea that in this world today that children are being uh, amputated, having limbs amputated as a result of traumatic injury without anesthesia. And by the way, there's plenty of anesthesia medicine at the border of Egypt waiting to enter Gaza. There's plenty of food at the border of Egypt ready to enter Gaza. Children are starving. People are starving in Gaza. It's not as if there's some kind of natural disaster that's preventing anesthesia medicine to come into Gaza and be able to be to be utilized to uh, treat injured children. This is absolutely unimaginable that this is happening in this modern world. And we're witnessing it and everybody sees it and nothing's changing. The fact that there's now 1,000 new amputees, at least, and that number is going to grow because a lot of these kids are with significant injuries in which their limbs are going to have to be amputated in the coming weeks and months. Um, let's keep in mind, not only were they amputated without anesthesia, but many of them were amputated in a very quick fashion. And, you know, God bless the doctors and nurses in the health sector in Gaza. They are the true heroes in this, if there are any heroes in this, and there are, of course, uh, uh, among the Palestinian health workers. They're the ones who are day and night in the hospitals, exhausted as their own families are living under bombs and being killed, trying to help their own patients. And they're doing these amputations in a very quick manner because they have so many injured cases coming in. And a lot of these kids who are suffering traumatic amputations have to have surgery again in the future and even further amputations because they're not getting the adequate care in the initial stages of the amputation. Um, so they're going to need revision surgery. So our, what we're trying to do is I, we are identifying these kids, get them out, and get them the treatment they need first and ensuring that they have adequate surgical uh, services and then fitting them with prosthetics and getting them walking again. 
There is no services at all in Gaza for amputees. The hundreds of kids that we've treated over the years who've suffered traumatic amputations in Gaza, like Mohammed and Izzedine, who um, were, were killed this week, um, those kids are their limbs are breaking down. Um, they're 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 being destroyed. They're being they need to be adjusted. They need to be repaired. So these kids are now going again without limbs. And you can imagine under these circumstances, um, once again being dependent on others to carry you around or being on crutches um, while the, your neighborhoods are being bombed or your refugee camps are being bombed um, is just an unimaginable situation. And this is the reality. There's absolutely no services available for them right now. Well, on November 25th, during the seven-day truce, uh, Defense for Children Palestine filmed an interview with 12-year-old Dunya, who lost her leg in an Israeli airstrike that killed her whole family. Dunya then was herself killed on December 17th after an Israeli tank-fired shell hit her while she was recovering in Nasser Hospital in Khan Yunus. This is part of her interview with Defense for Children Palestine, which we're playing posthumously. When they shelled us with the second missile, I woke up and was surrounded by rubble. I realized that my leg had been cut off because there was blood and I had no leg. I tried to move it, but it wouldn't move. My father and mother were martyred, my brother Mohammed and my sister Dalia too. I want someone to take me abroad, to any country, to install a prosthetic leg, to be able to walk like other people, so that I can move and go out and play with my siblings. I want to become a doctor, like those who treat us, so that I can treat other children. I only want one thing, for the war to end. So that's a 12-year-old Dunya who was killed uh, on December 17th. Steve, uh, if you could talk more broadly about uh, the crisis in medical facilities generally, I mean, even the most basic care uh, that's no longer available to people in Gaza who need it now more than they ever have, and talk also about specifically uh, the cancer hospitals that you've uh, uh, built there. Yeah, so prior to October 7th, uh, we were on the ground in Gaza identifying needs in all of the various specialties in the health sector and developing programs to support the uh, improvement of patient care and reducing the need for patients to leave the Gaza Strip for medical treatment that they should be getting locally. Um, We were training doctors. We were bringing in medication, medical support. We were bringing in medical teams from all over the world. We're the main organization doing this and providing uh, hands-on training and support in various specialties that don't exist in Gaza, open-heart surgery for children, uh, neurosurgery, orthopedic surgery, and so on and so forth, reconstructive surgery. These were all specialties that we were identifying as a need on the ground and bringing in teams to address those needs. And in addition to that, we're identifying significant gaps in the health sector, like the lack of pediatric cancer treatment for children, in which prior to our opening of the only cancer department in Gaza in 2019, every single child in Gaza with cancer had to travel outside for treatment, and a lot of them were suffering, and in many cases even dying due to the lack of permits being issued or the access to care. After October 7th, the health sector, as you all know, has been almost completely destroyed. There's only a few hospitals now functioning, Uh, Most of them in the south, European Gaza Hospital, Nasser Hospital, Al-Aqsa Hospital, are the three main hospitals in the center in the south of Gaza Strip that are now operating. But they're basically just triage centers. They're doing some CPR there. 
um, that killed that. And this is what needs to be pointed out, as Amy said in the early part of the show, when she mentioned the statistics of over 8,000 children in Gaza have been killed. They've been killed by bombings. They've been killed by traumatic injury. What about the children who have heart disease, who need medical care they can't get in Gaza anymore? What about the kids who have neurological disorders or have cancer or have other types of, in many cases, quite serious uh, injuries or diseases that they otherwise would get through our medical teams coming in or through the health system being available that can do elective surgeries, no longer having access to care, uh, treatment, kids with diabetes, kids with dialysis. All of these children no longer have medical care and they're dying or they're not getting treatment. In many cases, their conditions are getting worse and they're suffering. What about the kids that are now in these um, internally displaced areas like these uh, UN schools where they're sharing a toilet with 700, 800 people, all these communicable diseases going around within the, these small communities or these huge communities now of, of internally displaced people, they're getting sick. They don't have access to primary care. And in some cases, these children are dying. Add to that the fact that significant number of children now in Gaza are suffering from hunger and from starvation. All of these factors, in addition to the over 8,000 children that have been killed through bombings of their homes and of their schools and of their mosques and churches and hospitals, you add all of those numbers up and it's an absolute humanitarian catastrophe far beyond what anybody can even articulate properly in words. It's, it's unimaginable. Our cancer department, which we opened up in February 2019, was the first shining symbol of hope in Gaza that we can do something. It was built by our community. It wasn't built by a government. It wasn't built by a foundation. It was built by thousands of people coming together and saying children with cancer in Gaza shouldn't have to go without treatment. And that's the kind of uh, uh, ethos that, our, uh, that we believe very strongly uh, in, that you, you bring the services to them, you develop the services, and these children get treatment near their families with the best care possible. That's destroyed. That hospital has been closed down since November 7th. It was bombed on November 5th. When you hear the words uh, uh, of Dunya, the 12-year-old girl who was killed, God rest her soul, and, uh, and what she expressed, that she wants to go outside, she wants to walk again, she wants to be a doctor. This is the hope of all the children in Gaza. And what we're going to do, what I'm going to do in the future is every one of these children needs not only a new leg to walk again and to have their bodies repaired, but they need long-term healing. They need an opportunity to develop themselves into doctors. We have to give them that opportunity. Their lives are being destroyed. Their lives are destroyed, but they want, to, uh, they want hope for a better future. We have to come together as a community. We have to come together as people who have love in our hearts, not hatred, and serve these children for the long-term. Develop programs where kids like Dunya, who's 12 years old without a leg, God rest her soul, have a chance for a better future. We have to take that responsibility. We're going to take that responsibility. That's the only way we can bring peace and healing to the children of Gaza during this nightmare of suffering and death that they're enduring today. Steve Sosby, we want to thank you so much for being with us. Again, our condolences. Founder of the Palestine Children's Relief Fund, an organization that provides medical and humanitarian aid to Palestinian children in Gaza. Speaking to us today from Washington, D.C. Coming up, we look at Secretary of State Tony Blinken and the Homeland Security Chief's meeting with the Mexican president in Mexico City yesterday discussing migration and the border. Back in 20 seconds.
When my love begins to sway by the Gaza Youth Choir. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met Wednesday with Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador in Mexico City, along with U.S. Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, to address the record number of people being arrested at the southern U.S. border, as many as 10,000 a day. Officials announced a new joint working group, but shared few specifics. AMLO has blamed U.S. sanctions on Cuba and Venezuela for the rise in migration. Biden eased sanctions on Venezuela's oil and gas industries in October. As the high-level talks took place, the Associated Press reports Mexico ordered workers in Matamoros to use bulldozers and machetes to clear a border encampment that included families with children who say they were given little notice before their tents were destroyed. Meanwhile, a caravan of some 6,000 migrants from Venezuela, Honduras, El Salvador and Haiti left southern Mexico on Monday. For more, we go to Mexico City, where we're joined by Laura Carlson uh, with the Mexico City-based think tank Mira, Feminisms and Democracies. Um, first of all, it's interesting, Laura, that we have really so little information about what came out of the talks yesterday between the Mexican president and the secretary of state and secretary of Homeland Security. We understand that they were going to be asking for visas to be withdrawn from people heading north to the border, um, railways being more regulated, bringing uh, people up from uh, southern Mexico. Talk all about what you understand at this point and why you think we know so little after the meeting. It is somewhat surprising that that so little specific information has come out because, in fact, they promised that a joint declaration would be made after the meeting. We still haven't seen that. The meeting really represents the way in which the Biden administration has adopted the Republican framework of immigration as a threat to national security, of migrants as a threat of border chaos in this pre-electoral period. And that's the tragic meaning of this meeting. It's a delicate, it's a delicate issue for both countries because on the one hand, the Democrats are losing any distinction between their own positions, the Biden position and the Republican position. We know that reports are out, the negotiations for the funding for Ukraine and Israeli wars is being premised on accepting Republican demands for reducing humanitarian visas in the United States, increasing deportations, and also denying asylum and due process in many ways for the greater number of people who are requesting asylum in the United States. All these measures require cooperation from Mexico. Mexico would have to receive the people who are being rejected, and as a sovereign nation, it has no particular obligation to receive people being thrown out of another country. It would have to facilitate deportation flights. So for President Lopez Obrador, it's a delicate matter because there's issues of national sovereignty. He doesn't want it to look like Mexico is also caving to a Republican model of stopping immigration without looking at the root causes, without looking at the human rights issues that are that are at the root 
of so much of this immigration, forced immigration, and at the root of the violations that are taking place on the border. So he doesn't want to come out and say that we've agreed to new contention measures. The U.S. government doesn't really want to do that either. So they're coming out saying there's going to be this regional working group. And this includes Guatemala, it includes South American countries. The fact that there was a dialogue is a plus for Mexico because in other cases, and oftentimes, it has to simply accept unilateral measures from the United States. And in many ways, it still does. The border closures that happened right before this this meeting were a bully move on the part of the United States that has a tremendous impact on trade, not just in Mexico, but also in the U.S., and that reminds the Mexican government of its dependency on the U.S. economy. So now President López Obrador is requesting a person in-person meeting with Joe Biden, and that indicates that they did not concede everything that this delegation from the United States wanted, and that they are going to push on some of what Mexico wants to get if it is forced, and it will be, to do the dirty work of the United States under this contention model. So, Laura, could you talk about some of the uh, root causes that you referred to uh, and the fact that uh, uh, Mexico's, uh, Mexico's president has said that the sanctions, U.S. sanctions against Venezuela and Cuba, are in part responsible for the increased uh, number of migrants attempting to come to the U.S.? So if you could explain what are what do you see as the root causes and what accounts for the increase in the number of migrants uh, attempting to come to the U.S.? It's so important that Mexico has placed the issue of sanctions on the table in this whole immigration debate, especially now as Republicans are turning it into this xenophobic and really racist rhetoric that we're hearing and that we will continue to hear up to the elections. What we know is that for the first time ever, the last month Venezuelans surpassed Mexicans in apprehensions at the border. And there's no doubt whatsoever, and there are very deep economic studies that show this, that the reason is because of these blanket economic sanctions on Venezuela. They're punishing people who can no longer feed their families. There's a huge spike in child malnutrition, and no parents are going to sit by and watch their children starve. And so people are forced to migrate. This is a classic case of forced migration, and it's a direct result of U.S. policy. The same is true of this spike that we're seeing, and we can see it here in Mexico by just looking at the composition of these caravans and the flows of migrants coming through from Cuba. The sanctions since the Trump administration that really did not undergo major changes during the Biden administration are causing increased human suffering, and that increased human suffering is leading to increased immigration. So you see U.S. policies at loggerheads where they are actually causing the migration that they then try to contain through these measures that are, that are whipping up racism and that are also feeding into Republican campaigns. The other reasons are also oftentimes related to longtime U.S. policies. They include the violence in Central American countries here in Mexico. That's a direct result of this drug war model Uh, the kingpin strategy of fighting violence with violence through militarized forces in these countries and maintaining prohibition in the United States. They also include neoliberal policies.
Well, Laura Carlson, I want to thank you for being with us. We're going to ask you to stay, and we're going to do a post-show interview with you in Spanish and post it online at democracynow.org. Laura Carlson, director of the Mexico City-based think tank Mira, Feminisms and Democracies. That does it for today's show. On Monday, New Year's Day, we'll bring you a special on Julian Assange, the imprisoned WikiLeaks founder. The High Court of Justice in London will hear what may be Assange's final appeal in February. I'm Amy Goodman with Nermeen Sheikh. Thanks for joining us.